Good morning, everyone. You're very welcome to this, our 9.30 service. We're still continuing our series in Psalm, and um, today we're going to be reading from Psalm 51. So if you'd want to follow along in your own Bible or on the screen behind, this is God's Word. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Father, and God, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather under your word as your people. Father, I pray now just for John as he comes to, to speak to us, Lord, that, that what you have prepared through him, Father, that it would speak to our hearts. Father, I thank you in this psalm that, that Lord, we can be reminded of the depths and depravity of our sin, that, Lord, only then when we can see Lord, how far we have fallen. God, can we truly see the majesty of your gospel and your goodness. So, Father, I pray here this morning, Lord, that you would just, through your spirit, just convict us of any sin that we are currently walking in, Lord, and help us to know that freedom that Jesus has bought for us. God, as we read in this psalm, I pray that you would create clean hearts within us, that, Father, that, that would come from a renewing of your spirit, and, and, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted to Jesus. That, Father, not in our own strength can we be good, but, Father, we are declared good because of what Jesus has accomplished. 
And Lord, we just continue to pray for those who are hurting. God, we think today of David and Sarah Watson. And Father, just pray that you would draw so near to them. Father, let the hope of the gospel become real for them. That, Lord, one day we all hope to be in glory with you, where tears and sadness and pain and suffering is no more. So, Father, we just pray that over their family and the wider family circle here today. So, Father, just pour out your spirit on this place this morning in the kids' spaces and here in our hearts, Lord. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Steph. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's really good to be with you this morning um, as we, we go through this wonderful psalm, Psalm 51. Um, do you ever come across a, a bit of advice or uh, knowledge that simply doesn't sink in? You know all too well the logic behind it, the rationale, and the reason why you should take notice of them, but you simply find yourself complacent to it. Uh, maybe for you, uh, this might be healthy eating. It might be, you know, you know exactly what you need to do to, to eat better. You need to cut out the junk food, cut out the processed food, and eat plenty of fruit and vegetables. Uh, or for you, it might be exercise. You have grand ambitions of, of running that 5K, but you simply don't get up and do the training. And then when you do try and do that 5K run, you realize there's a reason why the coach to 5K take it in incremental steps. Because once you finish your, your 5K, you're sore and in pain for five days afterwards if you've completed it at all. An example of this hit home with me really pretty hard not so long ago in a, quite a dramatic way uh, that it made me really sit up um, and change my behaviors, change my focus. I don't know about you, but whenever I was learning how to drive, I was always taught whenever you stop the car, whether you're on a hill or not, you stop the car, you put the handbrake on, and then you put it into gear. I was taught this, I knew the logic behind this, I knew exactly why you should do it, the reason being, if the handbrake fails, at least the car's in gear and it won't roll back and you won't crash your car. But for some reason I thought this rule didn't apply to me. I, I was a bit complacent to it, I've never heard of anyone having a, ha a snapped handbrake after all. Um, so I, I ignored it, it didn't apply to me, um, it was never going to happen to me. Well, time went on and my muscle memory formed and the routine became stop the car, pull on the handbrake and just jump out of the car. But then came along something a little unexpected, the automatic handbrake. So no longer did I have to pull up the handbrake, I could just leave the car on and did it automatically for me. Happy days, I thought, this is easy. Until one day after driving back from Cornwall and, and nipping out to the milestone, I'd driven a lot of miles and I nipped out to get a pint of milk uh, and we arrived home and I parked the car, got out, jumped out and five minutes later I heard one of those um, gut-wrenching screams that you never want to hear your wife scream and I looked out the window and I saw our lovely wee Passat start moving down the driveway and I gathered pace and hit my father-in-law's gate, went across the road through the neighbor's fence and into their house. Um, I should say no one was hurt thankfully. Um, but there was a serious lesson there to be learned for myself. And I'm sad to say it shouldn't have taken an incident like that for me to learn it. I knew the reasons why people advise me to, to put the car in gear, and yet I chose to ignore it. I chose to think the rules didn't apply to me. The head knowledge I had never became heart knowledge, and I never let it influence my actions. And as a result, I paid the consequences. Today's psalm is all about David asking God for forgiveness and redemption 
These are topics that are at the core of the, of the Christian faith, but yet is there a chance that we haven't quite let these foundational uh, truths penetrate to our very hearts? Do we keep this knowledge solely uh, in our heads and then live out something that is half-hearted? Or as a result, do we miss out on the freedom and the joy of knowing the depths of forgiveness and the fullness of redemption that Christ freely offers to us? My prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would awaken your soul to the joy of his salvation. Before we start looking at the words of David in Psalm 51, uh, I want to first look back and put into perspective uh, what the Bible teaches us about who, God wa- or who David was in God's eyes and why God showed such favor to him and blessing. And then secondly, we're going to look back at the reason why the psalm was written in the first place. In the scriptures, there is no king who was the apple of God's eye quite like David. The heart of God had a special affection for this man who was later described by the Lord as a man after my heart who will do all of my will. However, it doesn't take a lot of study and we will find out shortly for ourselves that David was a deeply flawed character. He failed and sinned in numerous ways and hideous ways. So the question that has to be addressed is why did God love David and bless David so much? And the simple answer is this, is that God loved David so much because God chose David. David did nothing at all to deserve God's favor. His crimes were hideous and in any other context, judgment would have seen him put to death, as we'll find out shortly. The point of David's life that God is telling us is to pursue is not David's exploits, but instead God's undeserved, unfailing grace and love. God is telling us to seek the grace he gave David, not the works David did, as these are a result of God's grace. God chose David, and the amazing thing that we so often cannot get our heads around is that if we are followers of Christ, then God chose us too. This should provide us with such assurance of our salvation. It is not based on any good works we do. Our salvation is secure because God chose us and his promises are steadfast and secure. Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. What assurance we have are for our own salvation. Now this psalm is one of the few psalms that provides us with a really detailed context for why the psalm was written. And so we had to understand that we need to step back into to 1 Samuel and read three parts of the account that led David to pray such a prayer. So let me read through 1 Samuel 11, 2-9. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Then he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the, father, of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And then we read that David invites Uriah to his palace where he laces him with food and, and drink and makes him drunk, hoping that he would go to see his wife. But again, we hear that he sleeps instead in the servant's quarter and does not go to his wife. Later on in the passage, 14 to 17, it says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him and he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he signed Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And then later on in 26-27 it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So it's quite a shocking tale, that. Um, and it's important just to take a second to, to take stock of, of what we just read. King David, the king that God anointed to rule over Israel, saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof and sent for her to come to his bedchamber where he had sex with her. The text gives us no indication either way if Bathsheba had given any consent to this. David committed adultery, at the very least. As we move on, we learn that Bathsheba became pregnant. We know the child is David's because when she was bathing, uh, when David saw her, she had been cleaning herself from her um, uncleanliness. With this knowledge, David tried to deceive Uriah, her husband, by inviting him back to the capital in hope that he will sleep with his wife and then assume the child was his. Deception. And David's deception did not work because we see that uh, it seems that Uriah was an honorable man and thought of others instead of himself and couldn't afford himself the luxuries uh, that were offered to him whilst his men were at war. And so what does David do? He wrote a letter to the general Joab telling him to put Uriah at the front of the battle and then withdraw his support from the front line, leaving him and a few others exposed to the enemy's wrath, condemning them to certain death. That wasn't bad enough. <clears throat> Who was the messenger of this letter? To Joab, David gave the letter to Uriah. Uriah delivered to Joab his own death sentence. So, this is extremely callous. Joab was no stranger to going too far in his brutality. When he gave the report from the battle to David, which included the details of Uriah's death, what does David say? And again, this is really cynical. He says, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. It's like he's washing his hands of it. Don't worry about it, it's fine. What's done is done. So we have three crimes at least in this passage. We've got adultery, we've got deceit, and we've got murder. As well as that, not once did we see him show any signs of regret or remorse for his actions. It's as if he believed in these moments that his sin was justified. His pride and sinful heart were so cold and hard that he didn't even view his actions as of adultery, deceit, or murder as wrong for him to perform. In these moments, he was so far from God that he elevated himself above God's law. They didn't apply to him. 
In the following chapter, then we hear the account of the way that Nathan the prophet bravely rebukes David in such a clever way. Nathan shares a parable, uh, the same form of teaching that Jesus often took in his ministry. The parable tells the story of two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had a great many livestock uh, and slaves, and the poor man had one little lamb, you. The lamb, you, was the apple of this poor man's eye. He ate at uh, the master's table, and he sat on the master's lap. He was the apple of his eye. A traveler comes to town and stays with the rich man. And the rich man, instead of sacrificing one of his own livestock, decides to steal the poor man's lamb, the apple of his eye, and use that as the sacrifice for this traveling guest. At this point, when David is hearing this story, he is outraged. He is brought to such anger that he says that this man surely deserves death and punishment and should repay his debt at least fourfold. Nathan then, with perfect timing, tells David that, in fact, David, you are that man in that story. You are the rich man. And what was David's response in this? David says six words, six words that show us that the penny finally dropped for him. He responds with the following, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now compare this to Saul's response when he faced his sin, the difference is, is vast, yet quite subtle. And Saul's response was this, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might bow before the Lord. Saul's confession at first glance seems promising, but if you look at what he's saying here, he blames the people for his sin and uses them as an excuse for his own sin. He has quite clearly not taken full and honest responsibility for his own sin. Confession should never include the blame of others. should never include justification for your own wrongdoing. We can see so clearly from the two responses that David gets it. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. He does not say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof, and when I saw her, I was, I was brought to, to lust, and I couldn't help myself. So please, you know, I'm sorry, but there is, there's, how, what could I do? You know, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. Or I was just trying to cover up my mistake. I knew I had sinned, and I just wanted to make sure that no one got hurt. So that's why I brought Uriah back. I tried to deceive him, but it was for the greater good, because he would, never, would have never known. No, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. However, do we do the same? Do we come to the Lord with justification of our righteousness, or do we put into context to absolve ourselves of some responsibility? Or do we come before a holy God simply confessing to the Lord that we have sinned against Him and Him alone? Turn with me now. If you, if you have a Bible in front of you, it would be really helpful if you're at Psalm 51 as we go through the text. Um, David's response can be broken into four separate sections, and we'll start with verse 1 to 2. Um, we see that David turns to God and then prays for the cleansing of his sin in this passage. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Maybe I'm wrong in this assumption, but who of us, when confronted with our own, own wrongdoing, immediately puts our hands up and owns it? Yep, I, I sin fully against you, and yeah, I own it. I think I'm safe in saying that the majority of people, uh, our first reaction would probably be to, to defend ourselves and to shift blame 
what are you on about? No, that was such and such did that, or, you know, it wasn't me. It's human nature to put ourselves above others and to protect ourselves in this way. Pride comes to the forefront so often when sin is brought to the fore. David shows us in this psalm that God wants us to react in a very different way. We touched on this earlier. David is asking God to blot out his transgressions. He is straight to the point, doesn't provide excuse in our context. He doesn't appeal to anything from within himself. Instead of what does David do? God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. That's what he appeals to, God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. These are characteristics of God that are self-proclaimed on Mount Sinai. God tells Moses the following, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, David knows who God is and knows that it is only God that can provide forgiveness. David asked God for two things based on this understanding of who God is. He asked for God to have mercy on him and for God to blot out his transgressions. Mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it is within one's power to punish or harm them. God had every right to punish David for his sins. If David hadn't have been king, the, the law of the land would have had every right to punish him, more than likely punish him to death. David at this point is like a man of great distress, though, for what he had done, and he is pleading for mercy, appealing to God's character as a merciful God. He then asks God to blot out his transgressions. By, by using these words, he is admitting to God that his transgressions are his own. He says, my transgressions. David owns his sin through this entire psalm, and because he does that, he knows that he can trust God to not only forgive his transgressions, but he can trust God not to blot out his transgressions, to erase them, to remove them from all record to the point where there will be no remembrance of them forever. Whenever we forgive others, we often keep hold of that transgression to some degree. We remember it and even bring it up again, especially if we've been hurt again, we bring up the old wound. For this reason, for us, forgiveness can so often be an ongoing process. We need to battle with this on a daily basis and choose to forgive those who have wronged us, not with God. When we forgive, He forgives us, He blots out our transgressions. We do not have to live in fear of a God who will bring up our old sin again and again. David then goes on to ask God to cleanse him from his sin. And then later in the psalm, he asks God to purge him with hyssop, which leads him to be cleansed and washed whiter than snow. The hyssop in this passage refers to the branch used by priests to sprinkle blood on a house that had had disease in it, but has now been clear. It's now been clean. By saying this, David is declaring that God is the ultimate priest who would forgive him and count him clean from his sin. It is vital that confession for us is a holy habit that we pursue on a regular basis. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, says in 1 John. We know that Christ has purchased our forgiveness and paid the price in full, but that does not replace our asking. It is the basis of our asking. Let me repeat that. Christ has purchased our forgiveness and paid the price in full, but that does not replace our asking. It is the basis of our asking. 
We come before a holy God confident that the answer will always be yes, no matter what. God, through Christ, promises to forgive even the vilest offender. He will forgive you always. If there's anyone here who feels like they are undeserving of Christ's forgiveness, I urge you to look at the example of David. Look at how David sinned against God, and then look at the assurance David had that God had forgiven him completely, not because he had earned it, but because God is loving and full of mercy. David then goes on to acknowledge, this, or acknowledge the seriousness of his sin, and he does this in, in five ways, and I'll run through them quickly. Firstly, he states that he cannot get his sin out of his head. I, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, he says. Is our sin ever before us? Or have we become so used to it and complacent with it that it no longer troubles us? If that is the case, maybe we need to come to be coming uh, and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to become more aware of our sin before we come to confession. Maybe we need to be praying through Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe we need to pray that more regularly so that the Holy Spirit can reveal to us the sin that is within us. The second thing that he says is that he has sinned against God and God alone. And by saying this, he's not saying that he has not wronged Bathsheba or Uriah. Far from it. It's very clear that he has, he has severely wronged those two individuals in this story. But what he is emphasizing in this section is that his sin is a personal affront to God. What makes a sin a sin is that it is against God, is it a personal attack on God's holiness. In Samuel, it tells us that Nathan told David that by his sin, he had despised the word of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. David in verse 4 says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment again. In these words, David is stating that God is wholly justified and blameless. He's saying that God has every right to carry out complete judgment upon him and that he will be fully justified in doing so. This is at the core of God-centered repentance. God has every right to condemn us. God has every right to condemn us to hell. And the fact that I am standing here and you're sitting here today is a sheer mercy. And the fact that I've being forgiven, and you, if you're in Christ, you have been forgiven, is mercy beyond human understanding. It's a mercy that can only be bought by the blood of Christ. In verse 5, David then goes on to tell us that he was brought forward in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. The fact of the matter is that whether we like it or not, we are all sinful human beings. We we're all born as sinners. And we all, all, we've all continued to sin throughout entire lives. The world so wants to tell us otherwise. It wants to tell us that we are all perfect, that regardless of who we are, that we are, we are perfect just the way we are. I, I came across a, a Mark Jacobs advert not too long ago, and it, the pictures simply pan from person to person to person as the, everyone said, I am perfect, I am perfect, I am perfect, I am perfect. As followers of Christ, we know that's a lie. We know that we are sinful and that we are all far from perfect. 
We are born into sin and we cannot come before a holy God believing in our own goodness as justification for our salvation. In fact, the more we encounter the holiness of God, the more the depths of our problems and sins are revealed to us. Again, let me repeat that. The The more we encounter the holiness of God, the more the depths of our problems and sin are revealed to us. We, however, are completely assured that God is perfect and that God lived the perfect life so that his death justifies us before our holy God. In verse 6, David goes on to declare that God delights in truth in the inward being. God does not merely desire outward good works, but inward purity. We see this so clearly in so much of Jesus' teaching. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? For example, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. A previous pastor of mine used the saying time and time again, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You see, God doesn't care about the outward appearance of purity. He looks to the mind, heart, and soul. To him, the inward is just as visible as the outward. And let's be honest with ourselves here. This is a painful process we're talking about this morning. Being humbled in this way will bring us to our knees. David even says that the bones that you've broken rejoice. Confession costs. Being a Christian is not easy. It requires self-denial and a humble heart. But God is faithful and he will bring us to a place where we hear joy and gladness. So in these five actions, we, we have seen how David condemns his own sin and confesses the depths of his own corruption. So firstly, David acknowledged that he cannot get a sin out of his own head. Secondly, he confesses that his sin is against God and God alone. Thirdly, he gave God his rightful place, saying that he is justified and blameless. God, that is. Fourthly, he confesses that he has been born a sinful man. And fifthly, he declares that God desires inward purity. So after pleading to the mercy of God, then praying for forgiveness and cleansing, and then confessing the depths of his own depravity, sin and corruption, we see David plead for more than just forgiveness. We see him plead for renewal. He prays that he would be transformed into a man who loves holiness and acts on that love. See, when we ask God for forgiveness, we are not only asking God to remove the sin that has condemned us, but we are committing to be changed by God into Christ's likeness. The mark of being forgiven is a passion to be changed. The mark of being forgiven is a passion to be changed. This is an essential part of the process, and David doesn't pay it lip service. He pleads that God would transform him in a number of ways. In verse 10, David asks God to create in him a clean heart. The term used here for create is the same term used in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. This word is only used to describe the work of God and not that of man. This word does not mean a making better or restoring or restoration of something that is broken. No. It is the creation of something out of nothing by God. There is nothing within us that goes towards this creating of a new heart. It is the soul, divine working of God that work, at work within us through the Holy Spirit. 
In verse 11, David is asking God not to do to him what he had done to Saul. Take the Holy Spirit from him and banish him from his presence. He says, cast me not from your presence and not, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I know what you might be thinking here. Does this verse um, read that uh, we potentially we could lose our, our salvation? And I would argue that it simply does not imply that. That instead the context here is that of kingly anointing. David is asking God here that instead of being removed from that station as God's anointed over Israel and therefore having the Holy Spirit with him, that instead God should show mercy and allow him to continue in this role and stay within God's presence, enjoying the Spirit as king. Verse 12 sees David pleading with God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's quite interesting that within this psalm you hear no mention of sex or lust. It's not there. And we would think that, you know, that really was a trigger for David's sin here. You know, it was the lust that came into his heart when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Why isn't David praying, God, would you protect my eyes? Would you protect my mind from, from lustful thoughts? Would you protect that? Would you put a barrier up so I would not see that? Why isn't he praying that he would, uh, that God would bring godly men into his life and keep him accountable? The reason is this, sexual sin is a symptom, it's not the disease. People give in to temptation because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in, of Christ in their hearts at the point of the sin. They have chosen to forget it. They have chosen to waver their affections away from Christ and chosen to focus their lives on material things. David knew this was the case for him and it's true for us as well. By asking God to restore to me the joy of your salvation, David is teaching us that we, what we really need is to have our eyes fixed on God. And in doing so, God has promised that he'll hear, we will hear joy and gladness and that our broken bones will rejoice. So what is our response to this? Well, David declares that his tongue will sing aloud of the righteousness, of God's righteousness, and that his mouth will declare his praise. True confession leads to forgiveness, which leads to restoration, which leads to renewal, which leads to praise. So far through his prayer, David is focused on his relationship with God, but his focus shifts at this point. He looks beyond himself to others and says that he will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. There is another purpose for this, for receiving forgiveness, and, and it is this, forgiveness leads to evangelism. David is so filled with joy and so sure of God's promises that it leads him to declare that he will tell others of what God has done and who God is. David will not stay quiet and neither should we. We often let ourselves believe that we have so blown it with God that our sins are too great that God surely couldn't use us in this mission, in his mission to reach the lost. Folks, that's what the devil wants to hear, wants us to hear. And it's a lie. I know I've believed that in the past, but it is a lie. It's a lie that the devil wants us to hear. This, is a, this psalm is a realization for David on what his purpose truly is on earth. This text alone has taught countless sinners God's ways, leading untold numbers of souls back to God. What did Joseph say to his brother? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The reality is we do not know the reasons why God allows us to go through 
um, such experiences in life when we are far from him and we sin against him. But what we do know is that God uses his redemption of our souls to bring himself glory. And then he instructs us to declare the good things that he has done in our lives to others, to acknowledge that we are sinners and declare that God has forgiven us, that he has restored us and that he has renewed us. Paul said the following in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying here that he is the foremost sinner, and yet the reason he uh, was uh, saved was to declare that Jesus might display his perfect patience within him for those uh, who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ, that is. Christ has perfect patience with us. Never forget that. He has perfect patience with us. In our brokenness, Christ is displayed. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. These are the characteristics of God's children. We are not called to be proud, boastful, and selfish, but instead we will experience the joy. We will lift up our voices in earnest praise, and we will evangelize in the power of the Holy Spirit only when we come before the Lord with a heart that is broken and contrite. At the start of today's sermon, we introduce this psalm as being one that is all about David asking God for forgiveness and redemption. We teased out how these topics, whilst being at the core of the Christian faith, are often truths that we don't allow ourselves uh, to, to fully penetrate into our hearts and our actions in the way we should. How we can say that we believe them with all our hearts and how we believe in a God that is abounding in mercy and full of steadfast love, but yet somehow we don't allow these truths to penetrate in. And sometimes we allow ourselves to believe the lie that we are the exception, that these things don't apply to us. Our sin is too great. Our shame is too overwhelming. Folks, David carried out the most hideous of crimes. He carried out a great, great burden of guilt. Yet God forgave, God restored, God renewed, and God put a new song on his heart and then God, in his mercy, commissioned him to go and tell others about that great love. We have the privilege of knowing that same God, and we can be certain that what he did for David, he does for us as well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you are full of mercy and abounding in love. Your character is certain. We know it for sure. We read it throughout the entire Bible of who you are, and we thank you that you um, choose to forgive us sinners. Help us, Lord, to, to humble ourselves before you, knowing that in uh, our humility, Lord, that you will honor that and you will forgive us always. But Lord, you have commissioned us for more than that. You have promised that you will renew us and you will bring us into Christ's likeness through your Holy Spirit. So we pray that in your renewing power that you would do that in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that in doing that, Lord, that uh, as we come to communion, that you, would, um, that you would put a new song on our heart, I pray. That you would 
lead us to praise your name and your name alone and all your works that you've done for us. We give you glory. Amen. Thanks, John.